If you have a Bible, let's go to Revelation chapter 6. We're in a study through the book of Revelation here at Grace Life. Revelation chapter 6 through 19 covers a seven-year period of time known as the Tribulation. I introduced that to you last week. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I hope that you'll go back and listen to that. That's going to be important to help you as we go forward in this study. I don't have time to go back over all of that today. I will say, as I told you last week, it's my view, not everybody's view, but it's my view that the church will be raptured before these seven years of tribulation begin. Uh, Brothers and sisters in Christ believe differently in that regard in some ways. That's not one of those areas that we uh, are going to fight about and split over. It's okay that we might not see that eye to eye. I believe that these seven years are not about the church, but I do believe they are about Israel, God turning his attention back to Israel, God judging the world, God judging sinners, and reclaiming the earth as his own possession. You might remember Revelation chapters 4 and 5 is where we saw Jesus go to the throne of his father and take the scroll from his right hand. And we said that scroll is the title deed to the entire created world. Jesus was the only one and is the only one worthy to open that scroll. That scroll, boys and girls, is sealed with seven seals. And when we get to Revelation chapter 6, Jesus begins to break those seals one at a time. And as he does that, what we saw last week in Revelation chapter 6, he broke the first four seals, also known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I called that seal number one, bogus peace. Seal number two, brutal war. Seal number three, global famine. Seal number four, death. And today, now we come to seal number five. And we pick that up in Revelation chapter six, verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now let's break this down. When the fifth seal is broken... John is given a look back into heaven. Chapter 4 and 5, that's what he was looking at, was heaven. But when those first four seals are broken, John's attention is on earth. But with the breaking of this fifth seal, once again, his attention is back in heaven. And what he sees in heaven is an altar. Now, we don't know a lot about exactly what the nature of this altar is. I do believe... We know what it is not. I don't believe this is an altar where sacrifices are made for sin. That's no longer necessary. Jesus is the last sacrifice that's ever needed for the forgiveness of sin. I think it's more likely that this altar may be more like when we think about uh, the, the altar of incense, where the prayers of God's people are represented. And you might remember from Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, a couple of weeks ago, this passage. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Boys and girls, God hears our prayers. God, you'll hear me refer to boys and girls. They got a sermon scavenger hunt today, so I'm trying to help them out. God 
hears our prayers. And it seems that he collects our prayers in these golden bowls full of incense. And maybe they're kept on this altar that John sees in Revelation chapter 6. Now, the altar is not anywhere near as important as what John sees beneath that altar. Look at verse 9 of Revelation 6. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. What John sees beneath the altar is souls. He sees souls. Now, I don't know what a soul looks like. Neither do you. But John knows that what he sees are not bodies, but rather they are souls. Now, let me say this. I believe because I believe the church has already been resurrected and raptured. We've already by this time received our glorified bodies. I believe there are people in heaven by this time that have a glorified body, but these people don't have a glorified body. The reason for that is these are men and women who actually have come to faith in Christ, they have been saved during the tribulation. And because of their salvation in Jesus during the tribulation, they have been killed because of their faith in Christ. Now they are in heaven as souls, but they've not yet been resurrected. Their bodies haven't been resurrected yet into a glorified state. I believe that's going to happen at the end of those seven years. So God is saving people during the tribulation. His grace towards sinners is still being extended during these seven years. And yes, many will be saved during that time, but the persecution against them will be rapidly increasing and it will be fierce. Government will sanction the murders of people who are seeking to follow after Christ. Religions will sanction the murders of people who are seeking to follow after Christ. Individuals will look on an individual scale to massacre any believers that they might be able to find. You've got to remember, this is a seven-year period of time when the restraining work of the Holy Spirit against sin has been withdrawn and the spirit of Antichrist is rising up and dominating the world. And so, yes, people will be saved during this time, but for many of them... It will cost them their lives to do so. Verse 9, look at it again. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Why? For the word of God and for the witness they had borne. That ought to be our priority, grace life, in the day that we're living in. That committed, that devoted to the word of God and to being a witness for Jesus in the world that we live in. These people lose their lives because of their commitment to the Word of God and because they're devoted to being a witness in the world. Now, that explains who these people are, right? That explains where they are, and that explains what's happened to them. Now, I want us to talk about what are they doing? Here's what they're doing. They're praying. Look at the text, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, Holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're praying. And listen, this is not what you normally hear prayed at a Wednesday night Baptist prayer meeting. They're praying for vengeance. For vengeance. Now that seems strange to us because we're accustomed to this softened down version of Christianity in our society today. But let me remind you, part of God's character and the fact that he is holy requires him to be a God of vengeance. He is a God 
of vengeance. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35 says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Skip down to verse 41. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. This is God speaking. And down to verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's lands. God is a God of vengeance. But listen, vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to me, not to you. Only a holy God who is perfect, only a holy God who is just, only a holy God who is perfectly righteous is qualified to execute vengeance. None of us are qualified to do that. When God acts in vengeance, it displays His glory to the world. When God acts in vengeance, it displays that He's holy and like no other. When God acts with vengeance in the world, it displays that He is righteous and in Him there is no sin. Listen, think about it. Don't you long for that day that God pours out His vengeance in this world? Of course you do. Because that will be the end of evil. That will be the end of wickedness. That will be the end of injustice. That will be the end of sin. That will be the end of Satan. In the meantime, listen, we sinners saved by grace, we don't treat sinners or those who have sinned against us with contempt or with vengeance. We don't look to pay back. We treat them the way God has treated us, with kindness, with compassion, with mercy, desiring that they would be saved by God's grace just as He saved us by His grace. Vengeance is not ours. It's the Lord's. But in Revelation chapter 6, the extension of God's grace towards sinners is beginning to evaporate. Many are going to come to know Jesus in those days, but many more are going to harden their hearts against God. And consequently, he'll be left with no choice then but to turn from grace to vengeance. And as awful as that's going to be, we rejoice in that because it will show the glory of God. It will bring an end to sin. It will vindicate Jesus who was mocked and scorned and shamed. It will take the universe once and for all out of Satan's hands. And it will usher in everlasting righteousness. And we will rejoice in that day. And that's the heart behind this prayer from these under the altar. That's the motive behind the prayer from those beneath that altar, those that have been killed during this tribulation. And by the way, their prayer seemed to activate the breaking of seal number six. The Bible says the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Well, these men and women under that altar have given their lives for the cause of Christ. They are righteous indeed, and their prayers are effective, and they seem to lead into the breaking of seal number six. But before that happens, something has to happen first. Look at verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Uh, watch this. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In other words, we're just told here that the souls that John sees under the altar of men and women who gave their lives for Christ in the tribulation, that's just the beginning of the number of men and women who will give their lives to Christ and lose their lives for Christ during the tribulation. Their souls 
robed in glory, told now to rest until the number of their brothers and sisters who will die for the cause of Christ is complete. Their prayers are heard, and it brings in seal number six. Seal one, bogus peace. Seal two, brutal war. Seal three, global famine. Seal four, death. Seal five, I call that prayers for vengeance. Prayers for vengeance. And seal six is panic. Panic. All the other seals, God sort of used sort of an intermediary to execute or to carry out his wrath in those seals. But when seal number six on the scroll is broken, it is God himself putting his hands on the world, taking the world, as it were, with his hands like an old rag and shaking the entire world out. Up until yesterday, this was just one of my old t-shirts yesterday. I need something to clean with, so this officially became an old rag. Because all of us guys know that's what eventually is the fate of all of our t-shirts, right? All right, boys and girls, scavenger hunt time, right? So this is what's happening with seal number six. It's God himself putting his hands on the world. And there will be no mistaking among the people who are still alive at that time. God has grabbed a hold of us. He's grabbed a hold of our world. And it will cause such a panic to the people who are still alive in that day, that literally some of them will die in their fear. We're now, I believe, entering into, in our text, the last half of those seven years of tribulation, also known as the Great Tribulation. Luke calls it the Days of Vengeance. That's exactly what those saints under the altar were praying for, for vengeance. Now listen as God shakes the world out like an old rag. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth, seal, the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth... And the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of Him who's seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's the most important question of the day. Who can stand? Who can stand against the wrath? Of a holy God. There is no doubt among these men and women where all of this is coming from. They have no doubt now that this is God. They have no choice but to acknowledge this is the wrath of God Himself, the Father on the throne, the Lamb at His right hand, and sheer panic hits and it will not go away. Some of you know what it's like to be afflicted with panic attacks, to come to a place in your life where Something is going on in your heart and your mind and your life that you can't stop your heart from racing. You can't stop your body from shaking. That's what it's going to feel like to the people who are still alive when this sixth seal is broken. They're going to know that Almighty God has grabbed a hold of their world. They will not be able to stop their hearts from racing or their bodies from trembling. And they will try to run and hide, but they will not be able to run from God. They will not be able to hide from God who's pouring out his vengeance. And yet they still refuse to repent. 
They still refuse to turn to God. Instead of running to Him for salvation, they run away from Him. Instead of calling out to Him to save them, they call out on the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and to crush them. And little do they know that if that happens, their misery has only just begun. Verse 16 says, Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? That's the question. Who can stand before a God like this? Who can stand before a God who is perfect and holy in all of His ways? Who can stand up under the wrath of God? And chapter 7 is going to answer that question for us. Chapter 7 is kind of an escape hatch in the middle of all these seals being broken where we get to come up and take a breath and we breathe. But as we do that, we're also informed about these people who can stand up against the wrath of God. It will not be the ungodly. It will not be the people who run from God, who rebel against God, who harden their hearts against God. They will not be able to stand. But some people will be able to stand. Many of them will lose their lives at the hand of sinful men during those days, but they will not lose their lives underneath the wrath of God. In fact, I believe some of them won't even lose their lives at all. Some of them are going to be preserved in their mortal body even through those seven years of tribulation, and they will walk straight into those thousand years of a millennial reign that Jesus will have from Jerusalem. We'll get more of that in the weeks to come. But in the middle of all this wrath, there's mercy. We already met some who found mercy in the middle of all this wrath. John saw their souls beneath the altar. That's the ones who were already in heaven who were saved during this time. Chapter 7 takes us down to planet Earth, where we meet more who have found the mercy of God during this tribulation. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. Where's the sunrise? In the east. All right. John's on Patmos. He's looking back toward Jerusalem. When I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Listen, back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Zechariah had prophesied that one day Israel would be saved. Paul speaks to that in the book of Romans, that one day Israel would be saved. Remember Daniel chapter 9, 490 years were decreed. 
for God's people, for Israel, for the holy city, Jerusalem. 483 years past, the Messiah appeared. He died on the cross. He was cut off. Israel rejected him. And in that moment, God hits the pause button at 483 years. Seven years yet to happen. And during that pause, he begins this thing called the church, the mystery of God. The Gentiles get the gospel and are commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But at some point, very soon, the church is leaving the scene and God's going to turn his attention back to Israel as he told Daniel he would. He's going to hit unpaused for those final seven years. And just as God powerfully pours out his wrath during those seven years, he is also at the same time pouring out powerfully his salvation during those seven years. And among the people who are going to be saved are these 144,000 Jewish people and God calls them his servants. And there's a lot of debate, as you can imagine, about who these 144,000 are. Are they literally 144,000? Is it symbolic? Are they really Jewish people? Does that mean something else? And we can talk about that as much as you'd like to, but I'm just going to say I'm going to take this at face value. I believe these are 144,000 Jewish people, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. You may say, well, they don't even know what tribe they're from anymore. No, but God does. They don't have to know. He knows. And God has set them apart during these seven years to serve him. And it seems that he's placed some type of seal on them that perhaps makes them invincible during these seven years of service to the Lord during the tribulation. They'll live through these seven years and they will walk right into his millennial reign for a thousand years. And I think they're going to be instrumental in many people coming to know Jesus during this time. I think they're already instrumental in those that John saw, the souls that he saw beneath the altar. I think they were probably instrumental in many of them coming to faith in Jesus. Think about this. Right now, there's 50,000 missionaries serving the Lord all over the world. 7,000 of those missionaries are our Southern Baptist missionaries. But during these seven years, God's going to commission 144,000 converted Jewish people to take the gospel all over the world. What he's always intended for his people Israel to do will finally be done in those final seven years known as the tribulation. What the Bible describes next leads us to believe that the greatest awakening hasn't happened yet. That the greatest spiritual revival, the greatest harvest of souls hasn't happened yet. I would like to Think and I do pray that there's going to be a great awakening still in this age we call the church age. I pray that there's going to be a great revival in these days that you and I live in. I don't know that that'll happen. But according to God's word, I do know there's going to be a great awakening, a great harvest of souls that's going to happen in those final seven years. It won't be easy to come to faith in Christ. You'll likely die because of your faith in Christ. But what the Bible tells us next is there's going to be many people saved during this time. Listen, that should not shock you. If he could save you, why can't he save somebody in tribulation? (laughs) If he could save a wretch like me, why can't he bust into tribulation and save people in that day too? He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace, not desiring that any should perish. You ought to be thinking right now, maybe there's a reason you're still here. He's not finished with you. If you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe there's a reason that you're here in this place today. God delights in saving sinners. Remember, he told those souls under the altar to rest, remember that, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. 
In other words, everybody that's going to be saved hasn't been saved yet, so hang on, is what he told them. And chapter 7, verse 9, takes us to that time. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, boys and girls, with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches that look way better than this one. <laughs> but I wrote this scavenger hunt last week, and then yesterday we were coming home from swimming, and I remembered, oh goodness, I'm supposed to have a palm branch in the box, and I don't know where a palm branch is. And about that time, we passed, I don't know, Motel 8 or something, and they had all these gangly-looking palm branches out there. So I went inside and I asked the old guy behind the desk, uh, I, I tried to explain why I needed it, and I don't think he ever understood. He just nodded his head yes, so I went off and broke one of these off. So in heaven, they're going to have better looking palm branches than that. And they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. People from all over the world that you could not count. And then one of the elders, verse 13, addressed me. That's John saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John said to him, sir, you know, in other words, I don't think I could really venture to say, but I know you probably know, and I got a feeling this is a rhetorical question, so why don't you just go ahead and answer it? And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And then you get a little idea of the kind of life they've been living. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How many times had these people watched friends and family members who had turned to faith in Christ, how many times had they watched them lose their lives? And God says, now that you're here, there'll be no more crying. You remember when that sixth seal was broken and everybody was in a panic, wanting the mountains and rocks to fall on them, and they asked the question, who can stand? Who can stand before a holy God? Who can stand up beneath the wrath of God? And chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, answers that question. Who can stand before a holy God? Answer number one. Those who've trusted in the blood of Jesus that has been shed. Only those that have trusted in the blood of Jesus that's been shed can stand before a holy God. What can wash away my sin? Nothing. Nothing but the blood. What can make me whole again? Nothing. Nothing but the blood. Verse 14 says, They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who can stand before a holy God? Not only those who've trusted in the blood of Jesus that's been shed, but secondly, those who've trusted God to be their shelter. 
Those who've trusted God to be their shelter. Look at verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Who can stand? Only those who have put their faith in the blood of Jesus that's been shed. Who can stand? Only those who have trusted in God alone to be their shelter. Who can stand? Number three, only those who've trusted Jesus to be their shepherd. Only those who've trusted Jesus to be their shepherd. Verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he'll guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I just want to ask you this morning, are you trusting in the blood that Jesus shed as the only way for you to be right before God? The only way that you'll ever be able to stand before God and not be crushed beneath His righteous wrath is to trust the blood that Jesus shed for you at the cross. To trust that He shed His blood to pay the penalty for your sin. That He took your place and by His grace He desires to rescue you and save you. Are you trusting today that God alone is your shelter? Or is your job your shelter? Is that where you find your hope? The money you have in the bank or what's left of it, is that where you've been finding your shelter? Is that where you're finding your security? Or today would you be able to say, no, God alone is my rock. God alone is my fortress. God alone is my shelter. Can you say today that Jesus alone is your shepherd? Or today are you following your heart? Today are you following your impulses? Today are you following the pressures of the the society that we're living in? Or are you following Jesus when it's in season and when it's out of season? Listen, Jesus came to save sinners. If you're here today and you've never put your trust in what he did at the cross and the shedding of his blood for you, I beg you to do that today. You've never known a shelter like you'll find a shelter in God himself. It doesn't mean the storms won't come, but it means you have a refuge in the storms. You'll never find another shepherd for your life like Jesus. You may think you're qualified to guide your life, You're wrong. You're wrong. Would you trust him today to be your savior, to be your shelter, to be your shepherd? Lord Jesus, we bow our hearts before you so thankful for your grace and your mercy. God, so thankful that you're still saving men and women and boys and girls in this world. We're watching that happen weekly, God, and we praise you for that. And God, I pray today for anybody in this room that's never given their life to Jesus. They've never said, God, I only put my faith in the blood that Jesus shed for me. I will not be able to stand up before you, God, because I'm a good person. I will not be able to stand up before you, God, because I went to church. None of that's enough. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that I stand. God, I pray for those today who have turned from God being their shelter. They've looked for hope and peace and satisfaction and security in things that have been created rather than the one that created those things. 
God, I pray for those who have, like sheep, wandered away from the Good Shepherd, following their impulses, following the desires of their own heart. God, I pray that you would turn us back today to following Jesus. Jesus, we thank you today that you came into this world and you, at the cross, spanned the chasm between holy God and sinful people. You said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We turn our eyes now to remembering what you did there in that place, in our place, that we might be reconciled before God, to God, that we might be able to stand one day robed in the very righteousness of Jesus that saves us and shelters us from the wrath of God against sin. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you for it. I want to invite you to stand and let's worship the Lord. Let's praise Him for spanning the chasm between us and God through His shed blood, reconciling us to Himself. Who can stand? Only those who've trusted Jesus, who He is and what He's done.